on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE. Energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. Hey, Ron, how are you doing today? I'm great, Ed. How are you? I'm terrific. And as our guest, we have with us someone that I got a chance to meet, oh, I guess it's about four or five years ago, maybe, a professor from Stanford University, uh, Tim Cho, who is... Just one of the, the most fascinating people you will ever ever talk to about uh, technology, especially I got introduced to him in his work on cloud computing and business models around that. But his latest work is a book called Precision, Principles, Practices, and Solutions for the Internet of Things. And before I do his formal introduction, I just wanted to get you connected. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Tim. Thanks for being on the show. Really not a professor. I'm just a lecturer. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess in, in academia that that has meaning. Hey, listen, you, you can yeah. you can lecture or, or, or profess whatever you want in front of me because we've just had some great conversations over the years. Uh, and and Tim has had a, a career spanning academia, also successful. And I love how he put this in his bio. And not so successful startups and large corporations. And I'm going to ask him about this. He was on, he's been one of only six people to ever hold the title of president at Oracle. Uh, he has written about the move from applications to the cloud, and his first book was called The End of Software. He serves on the board of Blackboard, uh, as well as uh, getting his Ph.D. in electrical engineering from the University of Illinois and worked for Tandon Computers. Uh, he also was an investor and contributor at companies like WebEx and a bunch of other companies that you never heard of but were sold to Siskel and Oracle. And he has recently become the chairman of the Alchemist Accelerator, which is focusing on industrial Internet of Things technology. And that's what we're going to talk to Tim about today mostly, which is Internet of Things and AI technology. And uh, Tim, so, so let me jump in. And I told you I was going to ask you this question. As someone who has held the title of president of Oracle, what was it like to work with Larry Ellison? Well, I, you know, I... I well, let's say it this way. I stuck it out for six years, so it must not have been too bad. So, uh, you know, uh, I think as all the uh, luminaries in the industries, there are always interesting characters. I think the part that maybe most people don't think about is uh, I think Larry certainly uh, 
you know, his outsized personality marketing side is one that you see. But I think the part that I think a lot of people don't realize is I think at the heart of it, he's an engineer. So uh, it, it was always amazed me the level of detail he would jump into um, on the product side. So uh, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, he. I mean, definitely an interesting guy, and that's an interesting story. That whole and even just the naming of the product as Oracle when it was, I guess, worked for the CIA, wasn't it, or FBI? I forget yeah. which. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> very early days. Yeah, the government. I mean, a whole other conversation, but I think a lot of the early work all across the valley. You know, whether you want to look at the beginning of the internet, Oracle. I mean, a lot of this stuff, semiconductor technology. It all owes a debt of gratitude to uh, the government's uh, sponsoring of a lot of this stuff. Yep. Yeah, well, and now they've taken it to a whole new level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't want to turn it into that kind of show. No, 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 no. We can go. We we we'll do that on our our uh, free rider Fridays where we talk about other things. But anyway, let's 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 turn to the subject here. You know, AI has been around for years. I mean, I can kind of remember what, even when I first started the 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 talk. They, I guess they were called expert systems at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but why are they gaining more traction lately? Do you think? Yeah, um, I, I agree. I think every. Buddy who's been around for a while seen kind of the uh, the we'll call it the death of AI of that period of time. In fact, if you remember back in time, there actually was a project um, when the Japanese economy was just going through the roof in the 80s called the Fifth Generation, and it was a whole, in essence, project around artificial intelligence. And it, uh, along with the Japanese economy, burned and crashed. So a lot of people stay away from AI for a lot of years. And um, I think what we've seen recently is just an amazing shift, um, whether that's, you know, facial recognition systems that you're seeing at Facebook or, you know, Alexa, voice recognition, these sorts of things. The, the one that I think I use to help people think about how fast things have changed is there's a competition called the ImageNet uh, competition. It's basically uh, to compete between a human's ability to recognize an image and a computer's ability to recognize an image. And basically the human is, let's call it, 95% correct. Uh, and I think 2010, roughly, the computers were sitting at 75% correct, right? So they were 25% of the time they were incorrect. In literally four to five years, at this point in time, the computers actually are 97% correct. They're actually better than the humans in the last generation of this competition. So I think you, 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 you asked the right question, which is why has why this change happened so rapidly? And I think there's really fundamentally three things have come together. So the first is, let's call it artificial intelligence software. So uh, some of your listeners may have heard of things like neural networks and deep learning and things like this. Basically, these uh, technologies, these hunks of software have in principle existed for quite some time. I mean, people have had these things out there. The Probably the thing that's uh, occurring much more different, differently right now is obviously with the advent of open source and the open source community, uh, there's much more access to this. So some of your people may have heard of a project called TensorFlow coming out of Google. So I think step one, the software technology has, has arrived or has been there. Number two is, and probably 
one of the reasons why I've gotten interested in this is the advent of cloud computing. So most people kind of treat cloud computing as this question of, well, you know, where's the box, you know? And I go, well, you missed it completely. It's actually an economic conversation. Um, so uh, about six years ago, I started teaching a class at Tsinghua University uh, in Beijing, China. And uh, for those of you who've never heard of it, uh, they will sometimes refer to themselves as the MIT of, uh, of, uh, of China. And I always am correcting them, kind of going, no, 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 you mean the Stanford of China, right? But uh, <laughs> if you're a student of, of, of China, you will actually know that every premier uh, of China, every leader of China since Deng Xiaoping, so over the past, let's call it 20, 30 years, has been a graduate of Tsinghua. So China's leadership is actually engineers, interestingly enough. Uh, but I was in. Uh, I, I go there and teach um, every year to two years. And um, six years ago, I went there and I know the Amazon guys, and they gave me three thousand dollars worth of computer time of AWS time. And so I showed up in class and said, "Hey, I got three thousand dollars, and that'll buy you a server located in Northern California, Virginia, or Ireland for three and a half years, right?" And they all looked at me and went, "Yeah." So what, right? <laughs> I could have a server underneath my desk for three and a half years. So uh, I said, or $3,000 buys you 10,000 computers for 30 minutes. $3,000 buys you 10,000 computers for 30 minutes. And by the way, at this stage, it's more than that. This is a math that was done six years ago. So, But the point being, a ton of computing horsepower at almost no money, right? So that's the second major thing that's happened over the past five years, five, six years. It's dramatically different. And then the third major thing is the arrival of a ton of data, right? So if you want to think about it, uh, why is Facebook facial recognition work so well? Well, because they have a ton of photos of faces, right? Um, if any of your listeners have heard about the AlphaGo project where a computer actually beat a human uh, this year, which most people didn't think was going to be possible for many more years. They actually had a database over a, over a million Go games, right, to go and learn from. And so this advent of large amounts of data coupled with cloud economics, coupled with these uh, increasingly open-sourced uh, AI technologies is really what's causing this big acceleration and what you see as a consumer out there. And that's one of the things uh, that I found fascinating about your book is that you really posit that that what we hear about as consumers with Internet of Things and AI is, you know, in a sense, just, just the tip of the iceberg because the, 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 the real real action is taking place underneath the surface, which is the, the business applications of all of this and the, the Internet of Things that's affecting manufacturers and farmers and, and uh, the, all these legions of other uh, businesses that are affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, as you know, I start out the book with, uh, I'm not sure why toasters should talk to coffee makers, so... I'm still not sure, but uh, uh-huh. I am sure that, you know, uh, with the use of these types of technologies that we talked about, we can significantly reshape the fundamental infrastructures of the of the planet. I mean, and that's, you know, energy, water, power, 
oil and gas, uh, construction, transportation, healthcare, agriculture, right? Um, and and I think that's really the 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 untold story and the story I wanted to tell in the book was really, you know, let's let, at least some of us let's go focus on how uh, you know we can build. I like to call them precision machines so that we can, you know, build a precision planet because well, the way I look at it, at the end of the day, right, unless we all move to Mars, <laughs> we're going to have to <laughs> operate more precisely. And frankly, you know, my other is to make the argument that uh, in a, you know, in a developing economy, uh, what do developing economies need? They They need fundamental infrastructure. So when you look at the global economy, which is, by the way, driven by developing economies, uh, that's that will mean Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Africa, where we're seeing massive population growth, right? And when you, I, I don't know that people know this, but Africa is is slated to be 25 percent of the global population by the year 2040. Nigeria is slated to be the third largest country in the world by the year 2040. And when you think about developing economies, you have to ask the question, well, you know, you're going to need energy and health care and agriculture and food and all this stuff in order to build a developing economy. Should we build it the old-fashioned way? You know, should we put landlines up to do telecommunications? And obviously the answer is no, right? You'd skip ahead a generation. So we have the opportunity also to take this technology and reshape, you know, the fundamental infrastructure for the entire world. Well, again, this is fascinating stuff, and and I, I've got a ton more questions for you, but we're already up against our first break. I, I can't hardly believe it's going by so quickly, well, uh, but want to remind our listeners that you can get a hold of us at asktsoe at verisage.com, and of course, the website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where we post show notes as well as previews of our upcoming shows. We also do have a live events page where you can see where Ron or myself or both are going to be in the coming months as well well as a show archive, which has all, well, now 113 of our shows. But right now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure, or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
the business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with dr tim cho he's the author of precision principles practices and solutions for the internet of things and one thing i really enjoyed tim about some of your writing is that you You really focus, most of the time when you hear about Internet of Things or read about the Internet of Things, it's like you say, you know, why should a coffee pot uh, to talk to the refrigerator? I, I, I'm reminded of uh, Vince Cerf, uh, the, the supposed father of the Internet, who said the nightmare headline for me is 100,000 refrigerators attack Bank of America. <laughs> I thought that was a pretty clever line. But you focus not so much on the consumer side for the Internet of Things, but on the industrial side and you lay out a framework for precision technology can you kind of explain that to our listeners yeah yeah um so one of the things that i uh actually i observed and lectured to my stanford kids and did it a couple weeks ago when we launched classes i said you know most of the technology that we have built the the software and i'm particularly focused on our the software industry right that we've built has really been focused on what I call Internet of People applications, or if you wanted to create an acronym, IOP applications, right? So whether that means, you know, a CRM app or e-commerce or purchasing or whatever, we really believe that it, the end point of our software is a human, right, that types or clicks or whatever, right? So, right. Um, and I, I, I made this, make this observation to my Stanford students and I make it to your audience, which is really important idea, is that people are not things and things are not people. I, mean, <laughs> I, know, I know it may not seem very revolutionary, but it's a very central idea that I think I want your listener to think about. And let me, let me add something. Well, why did I say that? Well, yes, it's kind of obvious that people aren't things, but let me talk about five reasons why people aren't things, things aren't people. So the first is, well, there are going to be way more things connected to the Internet than people, right? If you listen to John Chambers, he talks about 500 billion things connected. Well, that's literally 100 times the world population. Uh, a few months ago, I'm talking to the CIO at Extension Health, one of the largest healthcare providers in the U.S., and he says, oh, yeah, it's already happened here. We have way more things connected than people, right? So one. Mm-hmm. Two, things can be where people aren't, right? So what do I mean by that? Be in, the, in your stomach, a smart pill, right? can be one mile underground, a coal mining machine, right? It can be out in the middle of the Australian outback, so things can be where people aren't, right? Third, things have more to say. I said, well, you know, if you look at what humans do, well, we type a little bit, right? We can type something. We can click on something. Uh, Increasingly, we can talk to it, but that's about it. Now, a wind turbine today has over 400 sensors sitting on it. So whether that's barometric pressure, gas levels, temperature, right, et cetera, right, 400 sensors. So things have much more to say than humans or people. The fourth is 
things can say it much more frequently. So one of the fun things about writing this book is I got to explore lots of industries that I've never spent any time in. So uh, I spent some time with Joy Global. They make uh, coal mining machines. There is a machine called a long wall shearer. Um, this thing is literally a football field uh, long and 10 to 20 meters tall. And it basically grinds coal off of a coal face one mile underground. And as it's mm. digging its way through this coal face, it creates what they call an artificial roof as it's digging its way through. And one of the problems they have is every once in a while, the roof, the coal, collapses on the machine. And at which time they have to go dig out their, by the way, $100 million machine, uh, lost productivity, et cetera. So they want to be able to predict roof collapse. Uh, because of that, they put a whole bunch of vibration sensors up on the roof of this thing um, that sample it 10,000 times per second, which is a lot faster than any of us can type. So things can talk much more frequently. And then the last end up. Wow. We can have a healthy debate about this is, uh, well, you know, things can be programmed. People can't. So it makes them a lot different. So as a result of that, I ended up uh, taking this line of thought and saying, okay, can I think about what are the essential parts, essential components, essential framework to build IoT applications? And I basically broke it down because my audience I want to be a what I call a technical MBA, so it's not very technical, but at least I want you to understand some of the basic principles. So what is the thing? How is it connected? How do you collect data from the thing? What can you learn from it? And by the way, for the first time, we can learn without doing anything, which was not true in the Internet of People applications. And then finally, what are you going to do with it? What is the application going to be, right? So that five-layer framework, I spend some time talking about where we are today, but I think really what's much more interesting is where uh, we're going to be in the future because I keep making the point, all this technology we built was for people, not for things. You know, I love that coal example because it just reminds me with this Internet of Things, it's like having a bunch of canaries in the coal mine, <laughs> right? A lot of lead, a lot of different leading indicators because of this, because of your differences. Yep. I, 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 it might be self-evident, uh, Tim, but I think it's profound that people aren't things and vice versa. I, I think that's a really interesting point, the way you lay it out, the examples you give. And and just on that, just real quick, I, I you you mentioned your or uh, Ed mentioned your background as an engineer, um, and and you say you know sensors are beginning to follow Moore's law, and of course sensors are are cheap and are what making this all possible. Where do you see Moore's law going? There's been talk about it slow down recently. Do you see new chip design, new material like graphene uh, speeding it back up? You know, I, I I have to say first of all, I don't spend a whole lot of time there, but I, since I've been around the industry for, let's see, 35 years, <laughs> we, we've heard the story uh, a lot that we're, we're going to be at the end, we're going to be at the end, right. and each step of the way, people figure out how to make smaller feature-sized elements, and that's the essential idea behind why it is that you can take you know, processing power up and cost down, so I... I'm sure there's other experts that'll tell you what the where the end state is, but I don't think in the near term 
that's an issue for any of us. We're going to have a ton of computing horsepower, and costs are just continuing to go down, and right. tons of storage, et cetera. So I think the bigger challenge is for all of us is going to be, well, what do we do with this stuff? Because it literally sure. is approaching free. The, the other thing I love about you, you talk about new business models that this is going to open up and that, you know, in the old days, a manufacturer sold you something and, you know, that was pretty much it. You might have bought a warranty, but it could have broke and you, the customer has to bear the risk of uh, a breakdown and financial loss during that breakdown, all of that. But now you offer three different business models that manufacturers can adapt to or move to that actually where the top one is them taking the risk of ownership basically and charging you for use. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Yeah. I, um, one of the things that I try to do in the book is divide the world between uh, people I call people who build machines, uh, ACO builds tractors, uh, combine harvesters, Illumina builds gene sequencers, GE builds wind turbines, right? People who build machines and people who use machines. So, I'm Children's Hospital of Orange County. I use uh, MRI scanners. I'm Nick August, who's actually in the book, and I have a farm, and I use Massey Ferguson harvesters, right? So so if we're to focus on the people who build machines, uh, I think there is fundamentally uh, a new business model, model sitting in front of them, which strangely enough mimics the journey we have made in the software industry, right? So... And, and I'm going to take you through three models. So the first one is I'm going to sell you the product, and then I'm going to sell you a service contract on that product. Well, if any of uh, your listeners are students of enterprise software, you know this model well, right? Oracle, SAP, uh, PeopleSoft, et cetera, sold you a product, a piece of software, ERP application, and then they sold you a maintenance contract on that. And uh, from a business model perspective, that maintenance contract is enormously profitable and is really the engine for the traditional enterprise software company, right? So model one. Now, let me, let's come over the world of machines. Many people don't realize this, but General Electric last year did about $120 billion in revenue. About $70 billion was selling you a product, a machine, a wind turbine, an MRI scanner, whatever, $70 billion was at $50 billion was service contracts on the machine. Mm-hmm. And for the finance people listening, think about those, that's $50 billion recognized this year. Those contracts are typically three, five, seven years long. So even the $50 billion has enormous value. So for those people who are wondering that why is it GE's running ads on Saturday Night Live about you know <laughs> GE Digital and the digital economy and whatnot, it's because once you start to understand this, you go, and by the way, a service business is an information transfer business. The margins on that can be enormous. So increasing the service content of your product is you know, an amazing way to not only grow revenue, have the revenue recur, and also at, at high margins. So model one, model two. We did this in the, in the software business. We said, hey, if I can attach to your machine, I can give you assistance. I can say, hey, uh, you know, put this security patch in, make it more secure, uh, reconfigure your disk and improve your performance, right? So I can assist you in managing performance and availability and security. Well, 
same thing's going on in machines. There's a company out there called New York Airbrake. They actually build a product that connects to trains. They collect the data from those trains. They learn from the data from those trains, and they offer assistance to the train operator and say, hey, speed up here, slow down there, uh, and I'll uh, improve your, you know, your, con- your fuel consumption. So Norfolk Southern actually uses them and saves like $6 million a year in fuel costs. Right? So that's assisted service, which, by the way, in our world was an additional revenue source and is sure. for them in the world of machines or the world of things. And then finally, you know, if you sit there and go, well, hey, you know, if, uh, if I can tell you what to do as a machine, why can't I do it for you? And so this year there is going to be an autonomous train run for the north of uh, Australia dragging iron ore down to Perth operated totally by computers, right? right and if I you think that. about it, that's exactly what the SaaS, so-called SaaS business model is. Rather than me worry about managing the security, the performance, and the availability of the software, I hand it over to someone else, Salesforce right now, whomever, right? So I then can evolve into a machine-as-a-service model and now start selling my machines uh, as a service. So there's actually already an air compressor company who they're happy to sell you in Model 1. Here's the air compressor. Here's a service contract on the air compressor. Model 2, I'll attach to it and provide you some assistance on how to improve the performance of the air compressor. Or 3, you don't have to buy the air compressor, right? I will sell you air per cubic meter. There's even a, a, a story, I have got to check this out, where in Brazil right now there's a company who you don't have to buy the tires for your car anymore. You just drive in, they put new tires on it, and they charge you per mile you drive. Yeah, Tim, uh, Michelin does that for their truck fleet operation. Okay. They charge, yep, because nobody wants to buy tires. So, And, and GE does it with their uh, air, airplane engines. It's yep. called power by the hour because the airlines are paying for the thing to be in the sky flying, not when it's down. So it aligns the incentive. So when that plane goes down, GE's got every incentive to go out there and fix it. As, as quickly and as effectively as possible. So, well, which just, is exactly I just, what, I just love what happened that. in our software world, right? Right, yeah. right. No, I just I, I yeah. love how you brought the the change in the business model because I think for a lot of manufacturers that's going to be really difficult. It's really hard to change a business model. But Tim, unfortunately, we're up against our next oh. break. Uh, this is just flying by, but this has been great. Thank you so much. And folks, we'd like to remind you, you can visit us at thesoulofenterprise.com. We will post full show notes with Tim and where you can get his books and some other articles he's written and even a, a online video uh, interview he's done that I really enjoyed. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Quanta CRM. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. We believe great companies can become even greater by challenging the status quo within their companies. The latest challenge to your status quo? The way people buy has changed. Buyers now control the majority of the front end of the sales process. 
Sellers must learn to facilitate a buying process, not conduct a sales process. Social buying signals are an opportunity for sales. Learn more. Go to quantacrm.com slash ABC to request a copy of the white paper, Always Be Closing, a guide to the new art of social selling. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Tim Cho. Not sure where uh, my co-host oh, Here I am. Him. Oh, here you are. Okay, great. Here I am. Sorry. Go ahead, no Ed. Just saying that the, the book is Precision, Principles, Practices, and Solutions for the Internet of Things. We are on with, with lecturer at Stanford, Tim Cho. Thank you again so much for coming on. I'm going to shift gears a little bit on you here, Tim, and uh, ask you about your feelings about all of this. Are you optimistic, pessimistic about the AI transformation, and why or why not? Wow, I, I thought we were engineers. Are we supposed to have feelings? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's what the show is about. There's no censors here. No censors. Oh, okay, okay. This is a feelings thing. Okay. Uh, uh, well, I do live in California, so I know how to share my feelings, right? So, uh, you know, I, I actually, I was invited uh, at the beginning of the summer to a CEO summit in um, in Ascot in England, and it was all on the conversation of uh, of artificial intelligence and its impact. Uh, we got into the whole. I, I told people, I said, I have never been to a tech conference in which people were talking about technology being bad, right? Like bad, <laughs> because you know, obviously, part of the conversation turned to the whole social implication. The well, if computers take over doing everything, then what are we going to do uh, line of conversation, which bleeds into the uh, guaranteed income uh, conversation. So the, the, clearly there's a lot of uh, sensitivity. I, uh, we did the book kickoff in London, and, and uh, I had an audience member ask a question, said, you know, he started out with, Dr. Stephen Hawking says that, <laughs> and you're going, <laughs> you know... <laughs> Who am I to argue with a Nobel Prize winner, right? But I, I think first of all, you know, we we have been in a world in which technology has continued to evolve, and people like to use steam engines, electricity, all these examples of that's been happening, and it displaces, you know, the guy that used to shoe horses. You don't need anybody like that anymore, and so. Um, I think, yes, this is happening all over again. I think the part in, in which I think puts enormous pressure on 
uh, a big issue of education and how do we educate people. Um, and, and, and I also think that probably the thing that's a little bit different this time is we now can move at the speed of software. And the speed of software is as fast as you can think about stuff. And so that's why these shifts may be actually faster to occur than what we saw last time around where, you know, physical infrastructure needs to move around to have this happen. So um, I don't deny, but I think I'm going to say I'm perhaps because I was born that way. As in, I'm the optimist. I think, you know, the ability to use this technology to, you know, change as I opened up this conversation, uh, the global economy. I mean, if I did a lecture, this all started because I did a lecture in, in uh, Rwanda, in Africa, on cloud computing. And about 15 minutes in, one of the kids raised hands and says, well, that's really interesting, but you know, you first have to have, to love, have, to have electricity. <laughs> it's like, yep, you're right. So I think if we can use these technologies to really, you know, improve our ability to uh, generate energy, food, and healthcare in a totally, uh, you know, green field of technology-powered way, I'm going to argue the benefits outweigh the the issues that people are raising around this. Well, I think you, you certainly have, have found uh, compatriots in, in myself and Ron. I think we, we both, we've done shows on, on this, especially as it affects professions. But mm-hmm. uh, along this line of thinking, I just uh, I just saw the movie Sully mm-hmm. the, about the the. the the, the plane that landed in the Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, I don't know, th- it was it was interesting because I think they created a little bit of drama in the movie that isn't necessarily true with the the Nash- NTSB and their simulation said that, that they could get back but couldn't. And I suppose part of it's true, but the drama between the, 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 the two parties I think was a little bit fictitious. Anyway, mm-hmm. the point being that the they, they they once they factored in a human decision factor, meaning it took them thirty five seconds to make a decision as to what to do mm-hmm. to go back. That then at that point, then their simulation said, "Well, no, you can't make it at that point." Mm-hmm. Right. So this led to an interesting conversation that I was having with my wife is, do you think ultimately it's a good idea to give the computers the final say? Because on the one hand they would be able to make that decision quicker, right? So the 35 seconds would be reduced to 35 nanoseconds, right? Okay, we got to get back to LaGuardia, right? On the other hand, if there's no way to get back, is there an element that will be written into software that would allow for the creativity of a Chesley Sullenberger to attempt a landing in the Hudson, right? Yeah, I think where I, you know, I'll... I'll I think the, well, I'll call it the next stopping point for all this uh, intelligent technology is applied to machines is, uh, I've been using the phrase, a precision digital assistant. So c- can I use uh, all this data, all this computing horsepower, all this artificial intelligence technology, and come back to you, Sully, in your example, and give you my advice with as much accuracy and precision as possible and then let you act on it. I think that's really the next step that we're headed to. And then as we all grow in confidence on that question of is the computer right accurate uh, or not, then, you know, as time wears on, as my example, 
they'll let the train run from, you know, northern Australia down to Perth totally autonomously. Because, I mean, I'll, I'll make an observation. We, you know, I've been a long time in commuting, and I started out my career at Tandem Computers, which we were building nonstop fault-tolerant systems. And I always ask people, I said, what do you think the number one reason why computer systems fail? You know, well, it, it's not hardware, and it's not software. It's us. It's humans, Right. Uh, there's actually an old joke, which is, how do you build a reliable computer system? Well, you get a man and a dog, right? Why a man and a dog? Well, the man's to feed the dog. The dog's to keep the man away from the computer, right? So, <laughs> I, you know, in in a lot of cases, uh, at the end of the day, we're the source of uh, the error. So, uh, so I think that's why in the long term, it's highly likely a lot of this stuff start to operate autonomously, whether that's a train, a plane, automobile, et cetera. And in the middle ground, which we'll probably be in for the next 10 years, I'm going to say it really looks like precision digital assistance that will provide us counsel and advice, whether that's at what point in time to maintain the wind turbine or how to optimize the operation of this combine harvester or, you know, to your question, whether to turn back or not, Right. Yeah, yeah, and it'll be an interesting transition and shift. It's already, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, Uber uh, driverless or uh, autonomous vehicles in Pittsburgh, of all places, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you people can request. And apparently it's a big hit, by the way. I just was, was doing some reading on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the negative side of things, it, what's to prevent uh, with, with, a, with this completely interconnected community a, a Stuxnet virus of epic proportions that would affect these sensors uh, similar to, by the way, for those of you who don't know what Stuxnet is, the, the virus that was purposefully implanted, I believe, by, by the CIA and Siemens to make the, the, the um, centrifuges spin too quickly in, in Iran uh, and, and really destroyed their, their nuclear uh, program. But what, what's, is, is security being built into this stuff in, in, in your, as you see it? to make sure that that doesn't happen? No. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's awesome. Crappy. It's crappy. It's you know, crappy. I, I mean, just to make a point of it, I, in my opinion right now, we are very early in the next generations of these technologies. And since you brought up security, you look at the machines right now, and one of the things I did in the book is I tried to go and talk and find out. We did 14 cases, uh, cover all big industries, construction, oil and gas, healthcare, et cetera, to just try to understand where people really are right now. And when you look at it, most of the things, most of the machines out there, they're these old PLC things, microcontrollers. They're barely computers inside these things. Uh, any notion of security is you know, faint at best, right? Which is why, and we've already seen this, to your point, Stuckneck, I mean, the Ukrainian power grid actually was compromised. I mean, it's all that stuff, it's, it's totally, you know, there to be had, so to speak. I think the opportunity exists, by the way, to, to put security in, engineer it in from the beginning, as opposed to what we did in Internet of People applications, which we glommed it on to our laptops and servers and whatnot. Um, you know, I'm working with, you know, and actually all across this stack, whether it's middleware, machine learning, artificial intelligence, security, I'm working with probably 
between five and ten different young companies because I see this as a whole new generation of technology. Um, and when you look particularly at the thing, since you brought that one up, I sit there and look at it and go, well, why is it that we are not going to see, I use the phrase, a cell phone inside every machine? Because when you look at your cell phone, you pick it up, what you're actually seeing there is 12 sensors connected to a pretty powerful computer with a lot of storage and memory connected to three different kinds of networks. And if you took the fancy case and all that stuff off of it, it probably cost you about 50 bucks. And so you go, why is that not inside every combine harvester, every gene sequencer, every blood analyzer, uh, every MRI scanner, et cetera, et cetera? And, and if you start to see the world that way, then you ask questions like, well, what would the operating software environment be? Is it going to be iOS? I doubt it until, you know, Apple decides they're going to build MRI scanners. Is it going to be some variation of Android, the Brillo work they're doing? Is there an opportunity to build a microkernel uh, that's secure, that operates multiple environments? Can I use blockchain technologies to do authentication of these things in the absence of passwords? And there's enormous opportunities out there across this. And, and just so people, I mean, I, I, I was speculating on this like early this year, like, you know, kind of going, well, this seems like what could happen. Uh, I mentioned I go to China once a year. So I was over there, and one of the things I do is go build, visit the big companies and also hang out with some of the startups. So I was over there talking to one of the large companies, Xiaomi, one of my former students is there, um, Xiaomi is the largest cell phone producer on the planet. They build 80 million cell phones a year. So where the conversation was, you know, they're saturating the cell phone market. And I said, well, so what are you guys going to work on next? And he said, oh, well, we have a new product. And I went, this is, he brought it out. It was an air purifier. If anybody knows about China's air quality, you completely get why this is the next product for them. But technically, you open that air purifier up, what do you see inside but a cell phone, right? So I think the opportunity to engineer security in to build real operating environments in these machines is enormous. And in the end, and this is what I think we're going to have to see a renaissance here, is most people who build machines, those companies are run by mechanical engineers, all due respect, who software is an afterthought. And I say, you know, when I started the computer industry, that was exactly what it looked like. We built big boxes. I said I worked at Tandem. We had big boxes, and, you know, we had to have some software on it to make it light up the lights, but we were selling you the big box. Well, that's what everybody in the machine world thinks they're doing right now is selling a machine. The reality is if you start thinking of a machine as a bunch of sensors, actuators, and a big computer in the middle, you start to realize it's all going to be a software game. And the example I show people, if, they, if they're interested, is go look at a Tesla. What the hell is it other than a bunch of sensors, a bunch of actuators, and a computer sitting in the middle? And I think wow. the renaissance of whether it's combine harvesters, gene sequencers, wind turbines, etc., from being purely electromechanical devices with a little bit of software on them, to the idea that, no, it's software at the center of it will shift their business models because now all of a sudden, just like in the hardware business, 
it, the hardware doesn't really matter. It's all the feature functions and cool stuff and all the value of the software. It's exactly what's happened in our business, right? The hardware yep. providers have yep. disappeared by and large. <clears throat> all value is no, accrued to the software player. Absolutely. Well, this is just a fascinating conversation. We're up against our last break. And without further ado, let's hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Tim Cho, the author of Precision, Principles, Practices, and Solutions for the Internet of Things. And Tim, you've heard it, I'm sure, when we use a product online or whatever, and it's free, like Facebook or Gmail, if it's free, you're the product. And you bring up a very fascinating point about the precision technology. Who should own the information, the manufacturer or the user? What do you think? Yeah, this is uh, already a, uh, a point of contention. I mean, um, I'm already aware of uh, a large car manufacturer that won't let um, any of the data off the robots go back to the robot manufacturer because they could predict car production levels or um, uh, another great example some of you may be aware of in the ag business uh, there was a lot of controversy with John Deere who was starting to take all the uh, the soil data agronomic data and reselling it and that, that became a real issue so this question of that the data is definitely one that's already been uh, faced by people uh, I tell people, I think I, I, I said first, I think we ought to be able to talk about data a little bit more fine-grained than just use the word data. So one of the things I've said is, look, let's split the conversation between what I call machine data and gnomic data. So what's machine data? Well, I'll use an example. Lumina builds a gene sequencing machine. Um, 
machine data would be uh, the power of the lasers, um, the level of the chemical reagents. That would be machine data. Genomic data is the genome, the actual genome that was sequenced, or genomic data. Uh, in farming, uh, machine data could be uh, what's the bearing pressure uh, on the combine harvester, right? Uh, what's the oil level, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's different than the agronomic or nomic, nomic data, uh, which is what's the nitrogen level or boron level at this point in the field. And I think right now it would make good sense that why would I not share the machine data with the manufacturer of the machine uh, in, in, the, in, in that I could have a higher availability machine, I could have a more optimized machine by sharing data from that machine. Uh, now, the nomic data is going to be, I think, a totally separate question, right, about, well, as a farmer, do I want to, you know, share what all is going on with, you know, the, my, my particular plot of land or take it over to humans, my particular genome. And I think there we almost look like the same conversation that we're starting to have in privacy of any, you know, quote, personal information. And I think some of those things that we've been talking about in the consumer world will probably bleed over into the enterprise world. Yeah, the, when you start talking about it in the healthcare market, that's big because on one hand, yeah, I would want to give information back to whoever about my cancer or whatever so they could help maybe other people. So it, it's kind of an interesting problem. I wonder if the price system will ever be used to sort it out. In other words, that genomic data, maybe the manufacturers would pay for it. They pay the user for that data. Yeah, and it could be people end up in the, you know, uh, if I share, I get model, right? I mean. Right, right. Like, so, like the donor donor lists, right? If I sign up to be a donor, then if I need yeah. a do an organ, I'll get one. Yeah. Yeah, very think, interesting. You know, at least right now, splitting the machine data from the nomic data and treating these two separately. I think that at least gets us a little bit down the path of having a more fine-grained conversation. Right, and it's a great question. We've only got a few minutes, Tim, but I have to ask you about this this, this Sam Schmidt story. If you could tell it in two minutes, because we'll post the article, folks. You need to read this article. It blew my mind. But can you explain the Sam Schmidt story? Well, Sam Schmidt was a race car driver who was in an accident and became a quadriplegic, and through technology, through IoT technology, uh, a lot of work that Aero Electronics did. Uh, they actually built a, you could think about it as a smart car, precision, we use the phrase a precision race car, which allowed Sam to uh, race again. In fact, he raced up Pikes Peak, and as I've heard the story uh, fairly recently, got his driver's license in the state of Nevada. So it's a pretty amazing story of what the power of technology can be. Truly, truly is, Tim. And, and, and I, I just wonder, I, I like you and, and uh, think that, that the, the, the benefits of this technology and where it can all go are far going to outweigh the potential negatives. And, and there will be, be honest, let's be honest, there will be some negative fallouts of this stuff. But in, in the long run, this, is, this has the opportunity to completely change the way we think about stuff in a, in a relatively short period of time, 20, a 20-year 20 period, maybe even less than that. Yeah. 
Anyway, thank you so much. Our guest has been Tim Cho, who is the author of Precision. Uh, Please go out, buy the book. Uh, read it if you want, but buy it. That's the most important thing, right, Tim? And <laughs> but we, we really thank you. For, <laughs> we really, we really thank you for being a guest on the on the Solar Solar Enterprise. And uh, Ron, I guess I will see you in 167 hours. Excellent. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing the success of businesses and communities around the world through the imagination of our people and smart technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please visit our website at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 